Today we will be speaking with Michelle Don, a Phoenix-based photographer, musician, zine maker, and person who does other stuff. Please put your tray tables in their full and upright position and be prepared for takeoff, because here at the Creative Curmudgeon, we believe the sky's the limit. photography do you do um so i largely focus on doing uh, polaroid film photography but actually creating emulsion lifts with the photos what's that so an emulsion lift is where you take a polaroid image um, and you actually detach all of its components so you're going to remove the actual image from the framing and from the little chemical packet that's on the back of the image. Um, you use heat and water and it's a whole process to kind of remove that pure image. And then you take it and mount it onto um, whatever you want to mount it onto basically. So you, you can put it on glass or plastic or wood or different types of papers. And then you can manip manipulate it um, to whatever you would like it to be, uh, different shapes and textures. And yeah, it's a super delicate process, but a really creative process because there's a lot of different options as far as what you're able to do with it. What or who specifically guided you towards that form of photography? So it actually was a couple of things. Um, so I am super into, uh, Bauhaus and the Bauhaus School of Thought, um, the idea of bringing art to the mini and kind of designing for the masses. Um, Bauhaus actually influenced uh, Ray and Charles Eames, who I am obsessed with. And in the 70s, they created a instructional video for the camera, the Polaroid SX70. And just because of my love of design and because of my love of the Eames, I purchased one of those cameras just to have for the sake of having, because um, it's a, a beautiful piece of equipment. And so I started just kind of taking Polaroids with that because I had it. Um, and then my friend Jared, who actually is a, also a photographer, a beautiful photographer, um, taught me how to do the emulsion lift process. And I kind of fell in love with it. Um, it's a very structural process. Um, so there's a lot of stepwise pieces to it. And I am a neurodivergent person and I like when things kind of fall into place as far as like having an order to them. Um, my brain just like works better that way. Um, so yeah, I chose emulsion lifts because I really liked the idea of it having structural steps um, and also, it's a really tactile 
um, way of making art. Um, I really like to work with my hands and it has like a sensory experience to it as well. And so, yeah. Have you gravitated towards other things such as singing, for instance, um, also because of just like that physical sensation that they, that they create? Um, that's a good question. I actually have never thought of that. Singing definitely does have a, um, a somewhat like tactile sensory experience at least. Um, and yeah, I, I think that actually might be, um, something that pulled me to it as well. Um, I, as a kid, uh, did a lot of like vocal stimming. I was always humming or singing around the house. Um, so I, I suppose that probably was incorporated. Yeah, I thought I heard somewhere maybe it was in Body Keeps the Score or something similar to that about singing being like a physical release of, I don't know, tension or whatnot. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. It's, uh, there is a sensory experience involved when your your chords are coming together for sure um and also the sensation of moving air yeah how do you decide that something should be a photography subject i i think there's a lot of things that go into that um one like i said i am very into Bauhaus and design in general um not necessarily minimal design, but design that has a purpose and a function. Um, I think that uh, I, I think that art should have a purpose, and whether that purpose is something more in depth or just something as simple as like it brings happiness or it's fun, um, like. All of those are are okay, um, but I definitely think that it should have a purpose. So as far as like finding a subject matter for photography, um, I kind of come up with a concept first. Um, so for instance, if I'm making a series of art pieces around uh, being disabled or around mental health or whatever the topic might be, um, I kind of come up with that first and then we'll find an image or object that kind of relates back to that and then go from there. Hmm. I, I've been doing the opposite of that. So you find like just something that, how do you, how do you well, I just, know what to choose? Does it just kind of speak to you or? I mean, I've, I've just been doing a bunch of like little stuff and then maybe after the fact you know it'd be like oh fuck it's a it's it's about like this thing that's like i have issues with or like whatever i mean both are both are good <laughs> you've made music in the past yes i have um what was your process with that um so the album that i put together um is called basis grusa and basis grusa means basic parameter. Um, and again, with the structural thing, um, I gave myself specific parameters for each individual song that's on the album. Um, it made it 
less open-ended, which I think uh, is conducive to how my brain likes to work. Um, so for instance, uh, there's a song on the album called 510. And for that, I took uh, my mother's phone number. And you know, when you enter a phone number into a phone, you hear like the, the beeps for each number. Well, each of those beeps has a specific pitch. Um, so I extracted the pitches for the seven digits of my mom's phone number and took those pitches and made that little melody a reoccurring theme in mm -hmm. that song. So that's just an example of like one of the parameters that I gave myself. Um, there's another song on the album called Grunwalds, um, which is it's a story about like a woman's pilgrimage to Nico's grave, the, the singer Nico, who I love dearly. Um, and for that, I took the Nico song these days and uh, kind of analyzed the score of it and took the chord progression of that song and deconstructed the chords and kind of uh, rearranged notes to create a melody. And that's the vocal line of the song Grunewald. Um, and then I took looking at these days again, I took the melody, um, so her vocal line in that song, and created a chord progression based off of that melody. And then that chord progression is the chord progression for my song. Mm. Um, so yeah, I just gave myself odd parameters for each piece that I wrote. Was anything or anyone particularly influential as far as doing parameters? Or the just the initial activity of doing it to begin with? Um, so there, there's a lot of, um, contemporary composers that do things as far as like, um, using mathematical equations and things like that to, um, kind of create musical pieces and different structures. Um, I don't know that anyone in particularly in particular was influential with that specifically. Um, I just know that my brain kind of likes to have rules <laughs> set in place. And so... That's why I did that. As far as musically, though, um, Nico definitely is influential. People like Bjork, um, just kind of uh, very organic, feminine, um, kind of abstract sounds. Mm -hmm. Was was there ever a period in your? I know, pretty much your whole life, you've done stuff in opera and in like structured sort of environments um but was there ever a time where you were trying to do stuff that was kind of more like off the cuff and then like you gravitated towards doing stuff that was more based in structure um yeah a little bit so um so i'm a classically trained vocalist um and the process for that is extremely rigid um it's very disciplined um there there's not a lot of leeway for bringing your own creativity into it um there is and there isn't um but there's definitely a large set of rules as far as like what you can and can't do and um i i think that that's just so ingrained in me i've i've been in choirs and training classically like almost my whole life like since i was a kid mm -hmm. um so the times that i have tried to stray with that were 
like for instance working on this album or uh, other musical projects that I've done that aren't classical and I definitely struggle I I, I um in trying those or even something like um not musical even something like poetry or just different artistic avenues that I've explored when it's not structured I kind of fall apart I feel like my brain needs something to like hone in on in order for me to be productive um mm -hmm. otherwise I I just kind of feel stuck yeah there's just like too much yeah, there's too many options. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So whether I'm practicing like a creative outlet, like for instance, opera that already has rules set in place, or if there is something that like doesn't have those rules in place, like I said, I put those rules there myself then and it kind of helps me rein in. Mm -hmm. How did you record that album? Like what did you use? Um, I used a lot of different things. Um, so I used an iPad and GarageBand. Um, I also recorded off of my phone and then used those samples. Um, as far as instruments go, um, I played guitar for it. I used some MIDI. Um, most of it though was not MIDI. It's, it's kind of more organic. So I was using things like, um, I have a little children's like Fisher Price xylophone um, that's in there. I was crinkling uh, tin foil. Uh, my dogs barking in the background are incorporated into it. I took a lot of like outside noises and then kind of decomposed them or flipped them around, etc., cetera, um, to mm -hmm. get the sounds that I wanted. That's awesome. <laughs> um, has your music background influenced how you make other forms of art? Yeah, so like I was saying, um, with classical, classical music being so disciplined, um, that's definitely helped me as far as really focusing in on uh, whatever art project I'm working on and really kind of being very detail-oriented about it um, and about learning its artistic process. Um, I also think that, uh, so opera has a very specific, like each, each piece that I would sing had a very specific purpose and backstory. Um, each piece I would uh, score study, which is just like kind of analyzing the musical structure, but then also looking into its historical context, the meaning of the lyrics, um, the story that was involved with it. Um, so all of it has a very specific purpose. Um, notes are arranged in a specific form for a specific reason. Um, there's nothing in it that is just there to be there. It's all very purposeful. Um, so I think that working that way for so long um, really helped me with attaching context and meaning um, to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, kind of like I said before, I'm not just kind of taking pictures of things just to take pictures of them. Um, they usually have a pretty in-depth, like detailed meaning behind it. And I think that that is directly because of how I worked with opera and singing. Yeah. Has your background and years of training with uh, music 
influenced whether you think that schooling or training is essential for art in general? So that's a really tricky question for me. Um, I, I don't think that schooling is necessary for anything in the traditional sense. Like there are capitalist barriers that keep people from going to, you know, traditional, like to like a university to like study art or music or whatever. Um, so I definitely do not think that that's necessary at all. Um, and I also don't think that any sort of formal training is necessary to be an artist or to create art. I think creativity more so comes from within and doesn't really have rules. Um, that being said, um, there are certain subsects of art that, yeah, I think do involve a, a level of training. Um, like for instance, you don't just wake up and say like, I'm gonna be an opera singer and then just do it. Like there's a lot of training involved that goes into that. Um, but yeah, does that make sense? Like I think art and creativity doesn't involve schooling or isn't necessary. Um, yeah, and I, I, I think that it seems like a thing with other, like visual art, for instance, where it like kind of adds some sort of credibility to it for better or worse. But then that's often not the case with, or it, it, with music, at least there's like a jettisoning of music theory. Like it's almost like people like the Beatles or whatnot being like braggadocious about uh, not knowing theory, you know? Um, I know you specifically threw that in there because you know that I don't care for the Beatles. So thank you for that. Um, no, they were just like the first thing that like came uh -huh. to mind. Like, and, and, you know, <laughs> people point out to me, like students bring up to me, like, well, the Beatles didn't know. So again, I think that you can make wonderfully creative things um, in music and in visual art without having any sort of formal training whatsoever. Um, and I also think that knowing music theory and being able to read music is also a really wonderful skill to have and can be applied to many other areas of life. Um, so yeah, I don't think that it has to be one or the other. I, I think that it can be both or either. How do you sing opera? What? <laughs> How do you how do you sing opera? Can you give us like a kind of a nutshell as far as like how you do it? <laughs> um, there are a lot of components involved. Um, a big one is the the breathing. Um, there's a very specific way to breathe and a specific way. Um, one taking in a large amount of air, but then also having the control to. Um, get that air out in, in a concise way. Um, the pressure has to be uh, a very specific way. Um, and then also vowel shape is incredibly important. Um, so how you're structuring your, your mouth, your vocal mechanism. Um, so your 
soft palate and your hard palate, which is basically like the roof of your mouth, um, your tongue position, your embouchure, your, your lip position. Um, what's an embouchure? So your, your embouchure is, is where your lips are positioned while you're vocalizing. Um, as well as like, uh, your uh, zygomatic arch, which is your cheekbones. You want that raised and kind of forward. Um, your eyebrows are lifted. There's a whole a whole lot of components that have to come together. And then internally, there's components that have to come together as well in your vocal mechanism. So your cricothyroids, which are the little pieces of cartilage like in, in, your, in your throat, um, you want those to press together um, to induct sound. Um, there's all sorts of uh, different things. And if it's not all aligning at once and happening all together and working together, um, you can do intense damage to your vocal cords um, to the point of needing surgery um, and creating irreparable damage to your ability to control pitch. But you could technically do opera sort of stuff without doing those things and sound good, but then you might just like need to go to the hospital afterwards, but it'll work like in the moment. Am I stop trying to bait me? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> no, it is it is not a a dire emergency if you sing incorrectly. Um, however, doing that over long periods of time, um yeah, I didn't, create I didn't damage mean... and scar tissue. Um I didn't mean in... like right after. I meant just like <laughs> it, you know, you might you, you could get the job done like <laughs> then, but then like, you know, you just might like suffer later. Uh, yes and no. Um, you can definitely create uh, an intense sound that might be similar to a, a proper like operatic sound. Um, someone who is trained will be able to hear the difference. Um, someone who's not probably won't be able to. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that's something that someone could continue doing. Um, and yeah, then it would eventually create scar tissue and cause some some issues. So let's say that I'm trying to sing opera like right now and I go, oh, <laughs> like what should I have done differently just then to make it sound more <laughs> traditionally operatic? Um, so like I said, the two biggest things are, uh, your, your, to me at least, uh, your vowel and also your air supply. Um, so your, your vowel was, was very closed off. Um, mm. your soft palate was down and, uh, your sound was focused in your throat uh, rather than towards the front of your mouth. Um, so that means your zygomatic arch, your cheekbones were down. Um, eyebrows were probably down. And yeah, it's it's just not the placement to create a, um, a healthy tone. What do you think I should do like on the day-to-day -to, -day <laughs> to like practice getting better? Um, so there are endless amounts of vocalese, um, little vocal exercises um, that can help uh, build stamina with with your breath and also help you kind of uh, practice vocal shapes. And yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, should I just Google these things? 
yes, or, um, you know, you, you have a trained professional living in your house with you who might be able to help you. All right, good, good to know. <laughs> um, tell me about your journey as a disabled artist and how that's clashed with, like, the nose-to-the-grindstone sort of mentality of capitalism and being as productive as possible in, like, art or anything else? So, I, I have a lot to say on this topic. Um, so, I've learned a variety of mediums, um, and part of that is because I am a naturally curious person, and I like to know how to do things, and I am curious about all sorts of uh creative avenues that I am just like drawn to. Um, but a large reason as to why I have done so many different types of things is because I've had no choice but to adapt to the conditions of my body. Um, so I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, which is degenerative. So as I age, um, things kind of get worse and worse. Um, sometimes I have a really good day. Sometimes I have a really bad day. Sometimes I go, you know, months on end with really struggling with mobility. Um, and so I've just had to adapt. Uh, so for instance, like I, I was a trained opera singer. I sang regularly. Um, I taught vocal lessons. It was a massive part of my life. I was in multiple choirs. Um, I had to have lung surgery a few years ago and had uh, lesions removed from my diaphragm. So that has made singing incredibly difficult. Um, and while it's still something that I do, it's not something that I can really focus in on anymore. Um, and so, yeah, it's just kind of always changing depending on where my body is at at any given time as far as what medium I'm choosing to do. And so as far as like the kind of capitalist pressure to be productive, um, I've had to take a lot of time to kind of come to terms with that and like work through a lot of weird shame and feelings that I had about this. Um, so like I said, with classical music, it's very disciplined and very intense. I would spend hours every single day practicing. Um, it, it was very rigid and not conducive to being a disabled person, like, at all. Um, and so I grew up with this mindset that, like, that's what being an artist was. This, like, where you devote your entire life to it and you're constantly being productive. And... As I've gotten older and as I've become more and more disabled, I have learned and realized that uh, productivity is a capitalist construct. Um, production and being productive, the act of being productive is fake. It's made up. Um, there, there's, there's no such thing. Um, I think that a person should create when they create and not create when they don't create. And... Um, yeah, it's, it's taken a long time to be able to say like, yeah, I'm an artist, whether I 
produce something every single day or produce something once a year. Um, and in those time frames where I'm not creating constantly, that doesn't make me any less of an artist. It doesn't make my brain less creative. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely something that I've had to come to terms with as my body has decided for me that I can't be productive all of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and also I, I think that it's been, it's been very helpful for me to go through that experience and kind of really explore those feelings. Um, I feel like someone that is having this pressure to have this like drive for production it's inherently going to move the focus of the artwork to creating for the consumer. Um, and I like the idea that I don't feel this pressure to create for other people. Um, I have a, a lot of things, writing and music and all sorts of things that I have created that I've never shared with anyone. Um, and that's really special to me and really important to me to have artwork that's just for myself, that's just for the sake of creating without this pressure of like having to create to impress someone else. Um, and I think that that like capitalist pressure to produce things just inherently makes you think about your consumer. Um, so kind of being able to detach from that a little bit, I think has been helpful for my art in general. Do you, do you care at all about whether the consumer takes in your art or pays attention to it? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, and I think that actually having that little bit of a, of detachment from the pressure to produce, um, helps me to be more intentional when I'm focused on the consumer. Um, so rather than it just being like this pressure that like I have to like put things out there to impress people or put things out there for people to see me as an artist. Um, now I'm able to say like, okay, I want to create this piece of art specifically to invoke this feeling in the consumer or I want to create this piece of art to help this community, like my disabled community feel more... Um, like less alone or to feel more validated. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm able to more, um, uh, more intentionally communicate with the consumer through my artwork, um, mm -hmm. without that like added pressure. Yeah. What else have you been working on lately? Um, so something that is fairly new to me. Um, I have been working on abstract tapestries. Um, I started to get into weaving recently for a couple of different reasons. Um, I discovered that uh, my, my ancestors, fairly recent ancestors, are from, uh, they, they are German, but uh, from Russia and lived in Russia for centuries um, in the Black Sea and Volga areas. Um, and something that came out of that region that was uh, hugely popular and has kind of changed um, the 
industrialization of fabrics um, is something called sarpinka. Um, it's a, a plain weaving process um, just done with like a wooden loom um, that has a specific like detailed pattern in it. And um, I have been kind of looking into my uh, familial history lately. Um, I have a lot of generational trauma in my family. Hmm. Um, a, a lot of mental health things and, and whatnot. That's cool. Um, and in learning to kind of uh, come to terms with that and kind of help myself, um, I have been looking back at my family history to kind of um, reach some sort of understanding, um, forgiveness, mostly just understanding um, for uh, what what's taken place in, in my family's history. Um, and I discovered, unfortunately, um, that a large number of my family members in Russia um, suffered from starvation, uh, mass ex execution, uh, labor camps, they were in the gulag, um, all sorts of horrific events. Um, and so weaving has been kind of a way for me to feel connected to them while I've been learning about them more. Um, and then aside from that, so that's, that's kind of what led me to be like, huh, they, they were weavers. This is something that they did every day. This was a huge part of their culture. Um, I, I think that I would like to like learn that process as well. Um, and then once I started doing it, uh, one, I recognized that it's extremely tactile, um, which I, I love. Um, and so the pandemic is also another factor um, with why I am leaving. Um, I am an immunocompromised person and uh, have been extremely left behind um, by the world um, in the ongoing pandemic. Um, people's refusal to mask means that I can't safely go anywhere, basically, um, not even for medical care at this point. Um, and so that intense lack of community care and lack of any sort of community for me has been extremely difficult and i have felt wildly ungrounded um, during the last three years because of it and extremely alone and uh i i am pagan i practice paganism um i definitely believe in a connectedness in the universe. Um, so feeling that lack of connection with fellow humans has been just particularly devastating. Um, but because of my belief that everything in the universe is connected, um, I have discovered that um, my connection with nature is kind of a substitute and has also helped me to feel grounded during this time. And it's helped me to feel like I'm part of something to still be able to connect with something in the universe. Um, and so weaving and tapestry making, um, I am specifically using uh, organic materials for my weaves. Um, 
things like wool and organic cottons and um, things that are more abstract as well, um, flowers and things like that. Um, so yeah, this process of weaving has helped me to feel more connected with nature and my, my mobility is on and off. Some days are better than others, um, but largely it's pretty limited. Um, so my ability to go outside into actual nature um, is often limited. And so weaving has been a way for me to still feel connected with organic elements um, while just sitting in bed working on art. How did you become pagan? Um, I don't know that there was any one specific moment. Um, it's kind of something that's just always been with me. Um, I have always felt a strong connection with nature. I've always felt a strong connection specifically with the universe. Um, and so it's always been something with me, but something that I wasn't really able to articulate and name. And then as I've gotten older and I've seen others around me and kind of learned more about specific practices, um, it's, it's developed a little more um, thoroughly as of late. And yeah, it's, it's just a, kind of something that's always been part of me. I also discovered in researching my ancestors um, that they were uh, a, a strong community of, of pagans and witches and uh, believed in all that sort of thing. And uh, yeah. So that's, that's been a fun connection for me as well. Do you think anything happens when you die? Um, I mean, I, I am a large believer in science, um, and believe that, you know, we, we decompose or are turned into ash and that decomposes. Um, and I don't believe in like a soul or anything like that. So nothing like floating up into heaven. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I believe that everything in the universe is connected. So like when we die and decompose, our bodies are scientifically returning into the earth mm -hmm. and becoming part of the earth. And then the earth, you know, is being food for insects and growing plants and etc. So I think it's all just interconnected. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank uh, you for having me. I, I hope I hope you felt this went okay. Yeah, this this was lovely.